have a special guest today. He happens to be blood related to me, but that's not the qualifier. For, I'm sorry. That's not the qualifier for being a guest. You don't have to be related. Welcome, Scott Chung. Actually, it's funny because I have mentioned you on this podcast in previous episodes, like alluded to things that you've said or what you do. And Eugene and I have both wanted to bring you as a guest on, except this time it's because Eugene's out of town. So... I, I feel very honored. A substitute. I'm glad you feel that way. What we say whenever I have a guest is that we're vetting for a new co-host. Oh, really? Yeah, I like that line to take. Let's get into it. Yeah, let's do it. All right. You know, it's funny because I picked another food subject and I think I'm usually the person who picks the food one between Eugene and I. Well, you're the self-confessed foodie in the, in the families. <laughs> so the article that I've picked is why are people of color left out of the American food story? And it's a video slash article by Jessica Valenti for Eater. She speaks with Michael Twitty on the politics behind food. So Michael Twitty is actually someone I was aware of before this Eater article came out because he also did a segment for a podcast I've listened to called The Nod. He's an author and culinary historian. He's written this book called The Cooking Gene, which I haven't read yet, but does sound interesting to me. And what he does now is he actually works in Colonial Williamsburg as a culinary interpreter. And what that means, as far as I can tell, is that he cooks food authentically as they might have in the South, like in the past. And then interprets that with the history and context. Yes. Yeah, it is important. So it's not meant to be just like a shtick, not just like mm -hmm. an enactment of how things used to be, but a educational element about cooking and educational about the history of African-American culture. Something that he thinks is missing from the conversation when we talk about the South in the United States. Yeah, and I think I was attracted to this article as a whole because he brings up this idea, you know, food is my flag. And the concept that he brings up is that the food that you eat and that you grow up eating is emblematic of who you are as an individual and where you come from. And it's the idea that like if you grew up eating rice, then rice is part of your flag. And that says something about you and your family. Besides this as an idea that I am on board with, I think I'm attracted to this because I don't really know anything about Chinese food. Even though I really did eat it like my entire life. This is funny because like, they, they actually brought up quite a few examples, right? So uh, with the uh, Guardian reporter, she was like, oh, so what's, what's your soul food and mm -hmm. what's your flag? And she was like, oh, uh, meatballs and Sunday sauce. Yeah, yeah. And even though I had no idea what that meant, right? Uh -huh. Ita Italian-American food, I think it yes. was. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, okay, so what's my soul food, right? And I was going to exactly ask you this question, right? Okay. So what's, what's your flag? What's, what's your soul okay. food? Okay. I think rice has to okay. be part of it. Rice is a part of it, but I don't even like rice. I, I love rice. Like rice, just rice. white rice? Rice, everything rice. Okay. You know, it's fine. I'm not going to hate on that. Because <laughs> I know I'm the weird one for not liking white rice. But I think more true to me is steamed fish, mm -hmm. which you have to agree yes, with. Yes, I do. I do. Steamed fish is definitely agree. part of both of our food flags. And just, I mean, I imagine there has to be some kind of story about why Chinese people are so attracted to not just steamed fish, but you have to buy like fish from the water. The fresh like fish? swimming. Yeah, like fresh fish. Uh -huh. Like they're not into frozen fish. I, I actually don't have anything on that. Is it, I mean, we do come from kind of the, the coast of China. So isn't that just built out of convenience rather than uh, the geographical landscape kind of shapes the way we cook and source our food? Yes, I agree. I think that is one reason why food is interesting because it says more about us than just taste. Like it says something about like 
the land that we come from. Uh-huh. But I think it's just interesting to me that, you know, both of us are like hesitant. You know, we love steamed <laughs> fish. We've been eating it, you know, whole lives, you know, especially at banquets and parties, like with our families, we'll be eating it. But we don't really have any background information. And I feel like that's, I, I personally feel like I would be interested. It feels, I only ever think about food like, oh, this tastes good. But there's more to it. So, which kind of goes back to the quote of like, food is always political mm-hmm. and food is always personal, right? Yeah. And when when I was watching the video, I, I was actually taken, a little bit taken aback by this statement. I've been thinking about it ever since I read the article, but I don't think I truly understand what that means, right? To me, it's still, okay, food is stems from a stems from sustenance, right? Mm-hmm. And like, I have to eat. And then it goes to, okay, I enjoy what I'm doing, but it's never been a connection to history or culture, mm-hmm. right? I can tell you what that I like Chinese food, yes, and that's part of my flag. But like, I can't tell you that I relate to Chinese food as much as I relate to, let's say, pizza because it's fun mm-hmm. or because it's delicious, right? Mm-hmm. I know, shepherd's pie from England. I don't know. I'm, I'm not thinking that food is political. And like, for me, I don't interpret it as an aggressive way. Okay. Not my food is this political agenda that I have that I'm trying to make you subscribe to. And, and obviously, maybe not every item of food, but for example, like tomato macaroni in Hong Kong is because of colonialization, yes. right? Or spam, like the fact that all the local Hong Kong restaurants have spam egg noodles, that's because of colonialization too, right? I, I would assume so. In Hong Kong, it's like a common meat. Mm-hmm. Locals love it too. And I think that is because of a history of colonialization. And I think that's part of what it means by like food. Maybe it's not food is always political, but there are political elements to food that we don't, we're not as aware of. And it's interesting okay. to think that because of globalization, this is less true now. I, I don't know what you're getting at here. Like Because you- of the nature of globalization, mm-hmm. you can get any cuisine in Hong Kong and it's not a political reason. True. I, I get what you mean by that. I would also actually kind of flip that around, but also because of globalization, the more localized flags have started to appear. Okay. Kind of like Italian-American, right? Mm-hmm. And then I was thinking of like, oh, the Chinese-American have their, let's say the stereotypical like Kung Pao chicken or like mm-hmm. General Tso's chicken, which doesn't really reflect back or like connect back to... I don't know whether it does actually. Well, I mean, it's interesting because like Eugene and I, we do talk often about perspectives from North America because that's kind of both of our um, backgrounds or cultural backgrounds. And Chinese American food is not something I can really relate to, but I can understand how it happened. Chinese people wanting to be successful as restaurant owners and make money and thinking like, well, the key to success is to make our Chinese food acceptable Mm -hmm. to Western can I tweak it for the local? I, I don't feel like, oh, it's a bastardized Chinese food. Like, I'm not offended by American <laughs> Chinese food. I don't really think, I don't know. I've never heard that perspective from anyone. I, I, I don't feel, I mean, there was a there was an American Chinese food kind of restaurant that opened up in Shanghai when I was there. Wait, what? Yeah, it, it, was, it was amazing. Wait, that's hilarious. Yeah, the decor was stereotypically American Chinese. But you're in China. Exactly. We were smack bang in the heart of Shanghai. And I mean, they they pulled out all the all the stuff. There were like fortune cookies, uh-huh. and there were lanterns, and there was like all all this like really uh, well, like kitschy. Yes, yes, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, kitschy Chinese decor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wait, but was it run by Chinese people? Yeah, I, I think it was run by Westerners. It was run. Okay, define run. Okay. Managed. Whose owned. idea was this? It was the idea of an ABC, so American born Chinese person. Got right? it. They they came to Shanghai. They were part of the increasing expat group that is starting to 
you know, lay down their roots in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, this is a great idea. There is enough of a population here that will be interested in this. But wouldn't it be so weird if you were a Chinese person and you didn't understand where this was coming from? I went there twice. But like, no, like a local Chinese person. And you're, did, did you see and any? And then there were never any local Chinese people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, okay. we went twice. Okay. Question's First time cleared. because it was novel. It was very gimmicky. I, I would it still was, go. I would go. It was apparently fantastically genuine. And <laughs> <laughs> what it was trying to achieve. Uh, <laughs> uh, Do they have egg drop soup? I have no idea what that is. <laughs> egg drop soup is the only American Chinese yeah, food that yeah, I really like. You're speaking alien to me. I don't, I don't understand. That, that is American Chinese and not Chinese Chinese. Um, this, that's so funny. The, it did garner a lot of press and a lot of PR. Yeah. And uh, they were actually doing quite well when, like, let's say in the first year. People relate to this, like going back to the flag thing, people relate to what they've yeah. grown up with, what they've, you know, seen as their childhood soul food. Also, there's definitely a market, I didn't even think of this, I was only thinking of ABCs, but there's probably a market for Westerners, like Caucasians in Shanghai who grew up abroad and grew up eating American Chinese food. And they go to Shanghai and they're like, oh, this is not like the Chinese food <laughs> I'm This is not to. Chinese food. <laughs> <laughs> but then this restaurant opens up and I'm like, this is the Chinese food This I food want. is wrong. <laughs> uh. There is an element, I can't deny, like there is an element of Twitty's book and video and his, like he, he runs a blog as well. And there is an element that is, it's a little bit aggressive. It's, it's more in your face. I mean, he feels that there has been something that's overlooked and he's trying to right that wrong. And so he's got like this mission. Yes, I think he has a very clear message in yeah. what he's trying to do. And he's that message is penetrates, permeates kind of mm-hmm. everything that he does and how he delivers his food, his interpretation, his uh messaging of history and kind of connecting all that all those together. Yeah. And it is it is definitely a story that the two of us are not gonna be able to relate to from our food backgrounds. Mm-hmm. He feels so. like, oh, white Southerners have overlooked African American elements of their food history. And I can't identify in that way. One one of the things that he said that both surprised me and as much as I try, I couldn't seem to relate was he said that why do you get mad when white people make this food? Mm. And I'm like, I, I actually don't know what that means. I'm Chinese by birth, albeit I might be internationally raised. Mm-hmm. But is there any sort of food that I'd be like, oh, like, this is my kind of food and I get angry at someone else? I, I, I don't really relate to this. I can kind of understand from his perspective, mm-hmm. in certain situations, seeing people you know open restaurants or profit off of recipes and kinds of food that he feels are like very authentically African American, and then mm-hmm. not giving African Americans credit, and I think that's like what he's reacting to. And I, I was trying to work myself into a situation where like, would I be offended if someone? did this with Chinese food. Mm-hmm. Can I imagine that? And I don't really, because I don't know, in Hong Kong, a lot of, there are a lot of Asian restaurants run by white people and it doesn't yes, bother but, me. But Hong Kong would also be a very, I'm not sure if unique is the world or atypical yeah, city. That's true. Because also those white people have as much claim because in Hong Kong, because we have we have minorities who've grown up here their mm-hmm. whole lives, right? Like they have as much claim to the food. Yes. All I can imagine is if someone did it in a very appropriated way with Cheng Sans and Chi Pao or 
I, I guess like, like it, but it, I would just think that was poor taste. I wouldn't feel like offended. I don't. Know. I, I I agree with the poor taste point. I'm not sure. If, I'm trying to think of something that I would be. I'm a traditionalist about. Like if I see, I'd be like, oh, that's not how it's supposed to be done, or like it's supposed to be this way because I was I grew up with this being like. Well, this. I mean, there's just like bad fusion food. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, it's not a great analogy, but I'll say it anyway. It's kind of like soup. Oh, for, I love Chinese soup. And and it's southern Chinese soup that I like. Wait, 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 what? <laughs> I don't know if I know the other kind of so, soup. So, northern… Sorry, I, only, I must only think of southern Chinese I, I think soup you do. then. <laughs> so, northern Chinese soup has starch in it. So, when, when you order soup in like Beijing or oh. Tianjin, Harbin, right? They give you like a more… Creamy? Thicker… Okay. Soup. It's not necessarily creamy because uh-huh. think about the kind of the sweet corn soup, sweet corn and egg oh, okay, soup okay, that we okay, have. Yeah, yeah. That's a little bit more thick than yeah. usual boiled yeah, soup. Yeah, so it's yeah, more like yeah. that kind of texture. Okay, got it. Yeah. And that's what they call soup. And there isn't actually the viscous liquid… The clear soups. Clear soup in, wow. in northern China or less of it anyway. No, I love my soups. But I wouldn't… I mean like I don't think the northern Chinese people are doing it wrong. It's just that that's like their way of doing it. Yeah. And that's like not… Preferential. I was thinking that maybe part of Twitty's mission comes from the fact, I mean, obviously, it comes from the fact that there is a history of slavery in the mm-hmm. States. And it's this idea that the captive and the captors have the same food history. And what does that mean for a person? And I think it also comes from, you know, the current political climate in the States where there's a lot of backlash towards the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. and there's a lot of anti-immigration sentiments. And so Twitty's kind of saying like, isn't it ironic? Isn't it hypocritical for you to love these foods but hate the people or to dislike the people? And I'm not I'm not sure how I feel about that because I feel like, oh, I don't know. Because <laughs> taste is just a thing that you feel, right? Like when you put the food in your mouth and you're like, mm, this is delicious. You don't think like, oh, this, this food was made by this person with this heritage. And I guess Twitty is suggesting that you should. Um, you should. And I think, I don't know whether this is correct, but like to, to use food and kind of culinary experience as the vehicle of just the messaging, right? And it, he may draw a stronger causation from it. As in like every time you have food, you should like a normative statement, you should think about the history of this food. Okay, what's more effective for me is that like, okay, like you can, food in itself is independent from all the context and people and race, but mm. you should understand that, right? And I'm not sure how thin a line that is. Huh. I think maybe the way our lives are built like the routine of our lives also just doesn't give us a lot of opportunity for thinking about food in that way. Because I do think as much as I enjoy the taste of food, often it is a fulfilling a need, right? Like a biological need. And we don't think much more beyond like what's convenient and what can I order and we'll get here quickly. Like those sort of thinking and that doesn't (laughs) provide for times to reflect on history or heritage. And I also think one thing that we miss out on in Hong Kong or just like us mm-hmm. in particular as we don't <laughs> we don't have a tradition of we don't really go to friends' places and then like all cook food together. True. Or like it's not normal for someone to be like, oh Scott, come over. I want to cook you a meal. Like this is not a thing that Hong that, Kong people say. That, that is true. Right? Uh, They're like, oh, I'll see you at dinner at 8.30 in Causeway <laughs> Bay, okay? Like Our shoeboxes definitely do not enable us to do this. I, I totally agree with that. Like to the point where I don't think with our Hong Kong context, we should, we might not even be able to relate. Like we cannot relate to this. 
about 10 episodes ago, I wanted to talk about this woman, Lily Wen, in Taiwan, who seeks to preserve her specific Taiwanese tribe's cuisine. So I think what I'm responding to, as much as I cannot picture myself living in a town, like living in the country, I think what I'm responding to is the fact that being city dwelling, there is a disconnection between where your food comes from and the food that you eat. Like we just get things from supermarkets. Or- but going to kind of back to Twitty's point, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It might not be the source of the food, but rather how it's made or what it's made into. As in like fried chicken is mm-hmm. chicken, right? And mm-hmm. it's like depending on how you fry it mm-hmm. or the raw ingredients is somewhat similar, but it's rather the deliverable. Yeah. yeah, I think he is. No, no, I think you're right. I think Twitty is more interested in the human element, like in the human choices of preparation and taste and serving it. But for us, because we don't, even because we go to restaurants so much, right? <laughs> like even growing up, like going to a lot of restaurants, I feel like our connection winds up being more with why do why are we able to have these sources? It's going to be different for different people wherever you happen to grow up. Like, I mean, we've only talked about America and then Hong Kong and like briefly Shanghai. I have no idea what it's like to grow up in any other part of the world, essentially. There must be the, the key cuisine or the key plates of food or the key dishes of each nationality is a food flag in itself, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I was kind of exploring this idea in my head and I found it interesting where like the analogy actually works quite well in the sense that like uh, if you think of the derivatives of a certain country, like the the British Empire with Australia and Canada and a whole bunch of other mm-hmm. tiny cities and countries, um, they all still have the Union Jack on their flag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So their food flag might also kind of relate uh, back yeah. to what the food of the British Empire was, which I know is not a great analogy here. <laughs> I'll take it. It's what you know, right? But, but it's kind of like the the meatballs and the Sunday sauce with the Italian, right. Italian-Americans, right? right? It's, right, it's right like they right. brought the meatballs over, but it's like a right. little bit tweaked and a, bit, a little bit. But it's kind of like how ketchup is rumored to come yes! from. <laughs> yes! Sorry, this is my Food fact. Please, sorry, continue. I cut you off. Please, continue. It's supposedly come from southern China. Yes. Cantonese. Yes. So the word ketchup apparently is a derivative of ketchup. Yeah, like as in the English is a translation from the Cantonese. Which means tomato juice or tomato sauce. This Uh. is my favorite food fact. I believe in it. (laughs) Don't don't debunk me. Don't email me. I want to follow this up anyway. Okay, do you want to move on to your sure. topic? Okay. Is there a conclusion that you want to draw? Oh, good question. Eugene would be so proud, my goodness. Conclusion I want to draw. I think the conclusion I want to draw is that the most actionable thing actually is to make our friends cook meals for us. <laughs> <laughs> I love this conclusion. Well, I think I think that's how we would learn more about each other's relationship with food. So I'll see you at your place Saturday. <laughs> Thanks. I didn't think that went through. Uh, I'll bring dessert. You have to prepare oh, the oh, dessert. Does, does freezing juice count? I mean, I'll ask you about it and what it means to you. So <laughs> be prepared. Okay. What okay. did you want to talk about today? The topic that I had was an article that came from Bloomberg. And the, the line is, success on YouTube still means a life of poverty. So uh, basically what the article is about was, it came out end of February, I think. 
And uh, it basically went through some of the statistics and a bit of the research on how much YouTube stardom actually generates. The majority of the points that were made that the article made was that we have this expectation that like are oh, the YouTubers, the successful ones anyway, are so uh, made for life. They they generate a lot of money. They're equivalent to what we think about. Uh, we think of Hollywood stars, mm-hmm. and but it's a little bit different because well, it's YouTube. So the Bloomberg article says that um, 96.5% of everyone trying to become YouTubers won't make enough money off of advertising, off of just YouTube advertising to crack the US poverty line. Top 3% of channels bring in 1.4 million views per month and that equals around $16,800 in ad The revenue for these top 3% is a little bit hard to determine because they get like other... I mean, it has to be, the majority has to be sponsorship money that the the real bulk of what these top 3% are living off of, like their houses and cars, et cetera, Uh like that's coming from sponsorship money. I would assume so too, but I guess that's hard. Were you surprised by these numbers? I was not. For me, the the numbers that they spat out and the numbers that were presented and the messaging that was presented was not a surprise to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean… We've been watching YouTube for like, let's say the last past 10 years. Uh, I think YouTube was made in 2005. So it's been 13 years now. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you're an avid YouTube watcher. I only wind up on YouTube when I'm linked there. Gotcha. It's, that's fair, right? Like I don't have, I don't have saved channels or… It's not a habit. It's not a subscribe thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not. It's, it's not. You, there's not, no people that you follow. No, I totally use it just as a source. Like… Someone links me there or I need to link someone to a clip of whatever. Gotcha. Do, you, do you YouTube surf? You click on no. one link and then you click the shoe. No, I'm going to sound link. like such an old person. But I don't understand how people YouTube surf <laughs> because it just doesn't… Like wh- what is the starting point? Uh, okay. One of, the, one of the things that I have to say is that YouTube does very well. What Google does very well is their recommended videos. That algorithm is like to a T. It's actually but, done but isn't pretty it because well. you but you are a longtime YouTube watcher, which is yes, why there is a lot of data. You, right. There is exactly. a lot of data that I've fed YouTube and yes. Google so that they can yeah. make the right, mm-hmm. right right. So they can make the maximum amount of money off of you. Money off of me or just time spent on it? Ah, it's in both of your best interests. They want to keep you there as long as possible. I don't know if this is in your best interest, but <laughs> they do this by serving you content that they think will retain you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That 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 makes sense. Sorry, we're we're getting off track. So YouTube, you were saying that they are really good at serving recommended content, and you yes. were asking me if I'm an avid YouTuber, which I'm not. So tell enlighten me. I mean, for me, I think it's like a. World of I YouTube. think it's the same as you clicking into Netflix and choosing what that discovery is like as well, right? No, so like there are there are people that I follow on YouTube, and that I do. I am one of those people that regularly will go onto the YouTube homepage or my subscriptions page Mm -hmm. and see whether the people that I follow have released any new videos. Mm -hmm. So I understand where, what the target audience is and I understand who they're trying to hit. Um, I guess my surprise with with this article is that it's not about the money or the lack thereof that these stars are making, but there are so many people aspiring to be YouTube stars. YouTubers. YouTubers. I'm sorry, YouTubers. Right? And I mean… Oh, I see. Oh, I, I do see your point. Because they can be a YouTuber. They just want to make it on YouTube. Like they want to be famous. Yes. So there needs to be… Dif- there needs so to be a differentiation I think a, in the… Yeah. Got it's, it. a, it's an intention difference, right? Right, right, right. Which… Because right. I could be a YouTuber. I just have to post something Does now. Does Macon have a YouTube channel? 
Actually, we do. Oh, this is you a, are a YouTube thank channel. you. This is very um, nice organic plug. We do have a YouTube channel. We just put our stories straight onto YouTube though. So this is another thing that's going to make me sound really old, but we realized there are people who just like to listen to their audio on YouTube via the podcast app or our website. So it's actually exactly the I'm same thing. People. I'm sorry. You can listen to our stories on YouTube. <laughs> actually, free. I have both a podcast uh, app and because I don't use my, f- the, the audio on the computer is better. So when I at, I'm at home in my room, I actually use the computer. Thank you for clearing this up for me. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. Okay, anyway, so you were <laughs> surprised that so many kids aspire to be stars. Yeah, I mean, some of the numbers here was that one in three British people, uh, British children, ages six to 17, wants to be a full-time YouTuber. Yeah. Right? And, and that, that's a third, that's a third of the population. But do you think, do you think that it's just, you kind of mentioned this, um, I saw in your written notes, that it's the glamour aspect. It's, it's like wanting to be an actor or actress. So I, I couldn't really wrap my ha- head around this as well, right? And, and it's a combination of a few things, I think. Okay. It's the easy access. Yeah. It is, all I need is a video camera and an internet connection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And seeing that the people that, that have garnered millions of views and seem to make it, be making a living off being a YouTuber, right? And they're not doing much apart from recording a video right. in their bedroom, it right? It doesn't look like it a lot of work. Exactly. It doesn't look like a lot of work, right? But like, depending on the quality of the video I and mean, depending it can on be the a success, lot of work. <laughs> it can be, I, I'm sure there's a lot of things where every word is drafted, every yeah. every movement, every kind of yeah. the story that you're messaging and it goes through. Right. No, I get what you mean. It's It looks, it's attainable. They, they can wrap their heads around the fact that it's very attainable. And it also seems like not as difficult mm-hmm. of a job as being a doctor, say, which even <laughs> kids six years old can understand is a lot of work to be a doctor. I think the thing that yeah. attracts people is the high glamour slash revenue in ratio to the amount of effort that they have to Their put perceived into. perceived amount perceived of effort. Perceived effort, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do, you know, something I was thinking about in connection to this is that it seems kind of scammy in a way. Like, <laughs> <laughs> hear me out. Again, I don't spend that much time on YouTube. Mm-hmm. But I'm still sure that a lot of YouTube stars are not on YouTube complaining about this video took me five hours to make and like I had to do all of these things to create this beautiful thing. Like they don't really reveal a lot of the behind the scenes effort, right? Uh-huh. They're in it to make it look like this wonderful package delivered to you in a perfect like two minute bundle. Mm-hmm. So that's the aspect of the scam where they make it look so glamorous that it convinces you or convinces young people like, oh, this is easy money. Like we can do this. And maybe they don't talk about like the exact ad revenue amounts are confused. Opaque. Yeah, opaque. Thank you. There's not a lot of clarity on how much they are or are not making. So I heard this episode. Do you listen to Reply All? I did not. Okay. So Reply All had an episode recently on dropshipping. Okay. You're familiar with drop shipping? I'm not. Can you explain that? It's e-commerce, but you create a website where you basically just link out to other websites like Alibaba, for example. Okay. And then you direct traffic to your website and they become attracted to the items and they purchase it. Little do they know that they're really purchasing an item from Alibaba. So it's kind of like an opaque affiliate marketing yes. thing? Yes. Okay. It's not technically illegal. It sounds shady. I'm sorry. I don't think I'm reacting the right way. You don't think it sounds shady. I don't think it sounds shady at all. But like you don't, like you've set up a store 
Let's say it's… Um, Isn't that what just all vendors are? <laughs> or all brokers are? Okay, fine. I mean, surely the things that you purchase from Welcome, you don't expect them to own all the way up the supply chain, right? You know, <laughs> you're totally right. <laughs> you're totally right. Yeah. Uh, and there's really no reason that a consumer is… There's no actual reason why a consumer can be upset if they're not satisfied with the quality of their item. But I guess this plays to… Okay, wait, wait, sorry. I didn't even get to my <laughs> point, which is that the episode is not focused on drop shipping, but that actually drop shipping people, like the people who do it, don't make a lot of money. The people oh. who make a lot of money in drop shipping ha- are the ones who've set up like online courses that teach you to be a drop shipper. Oh, okay. So so that's where I'm getting at at this like scammy gotcha. business where it's like, oh, maybe the most successful YouTube stars are, I don't know, the ones that teach you how to be a youtuber yeah i don't know i don't know if it's true but it just gives me that vibe this i actually didn't this is a a little bit of a tangent but like going off that i was actually walking through a bookstore the other day Mm -hmm. and uh i was looking at the investment section of the bookstore okay and the one thing that i couldn't get through my head was wait how do all these investors have time to write a book when they should be spending their time, surely you're making more from the investments themselves. And I'm like, well, this this goes to your reliability and your authenticity on what you're teaching me. Like, surely you should be doing it more. And like, okay, teach me by doing it, right? Like, that, that, that is how you should be teaching me. Like, don't, don't, don't write a 300-page book and tell me what to do when obviously it's what you are doing is not getting you enough. Sorry. No, I think that's completely <laughs> the same thing that I'm talking about. Um, but I don't, I don't know. Clearly, YouTubers, they make their money from sponsorships. They don't make their money from ad revenue anyway. Talk, but talking about the ad revenue, mm-hmm. this is actually one thing that… So when… Oh, this, this makes me feel, me feel old. But when YouTube just got set up and uh, monetization became a thing, I did think of like, okay, so… If this is so easy, if the if the barrier of entry is so low, can I just start putting stuff on that will like either uh, is clickbaity mm-hmm. or just like whether it's like movie trailers? Yeah. I, I'm, okay, there's a copyright issue there, but like stuff that people will click into, and surely then I'll just generate a passive income. Oh no, it's not passive, but like a, a no, revenue stream. I know stream, what you mean. A, a relatively right? passive. Yeah, a revenue stream that that mm-hmm. would do it for me, right? Yeah, low effort. And low effort, exactly. And but as this thing developed as YouTube became its whole kind of realm. People started doing it full time. One thing that I always had in the back of my head was the rules of the game are controlled by YouTube. Yeah. Their monetization algorithm is fully controlled mm-hmm. by YouTube. And they could snap their fingers tomorrow and be like, okay, this yeah. is what I want to do. Right? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if you know, but like last fe- like beginning of February, YouTube changed their monetization policy, right? So… Uh, instead of all videos being uh, available for monetization, okay. it changed to a requirement of the YouTuber must have at least uh, 4,000 hours of airtime and 1,000 subscribers, right? It's quite and a lot. It, which it raises the bar on on the whole lack of barrier of entry to yeah. get to get, a, get a revenue. Getting 1,000 people to subscribe is not easy, I don't I, think. I don't think so. So there was this… There was this uh, in the article. There was this one person who has been uploading yeah. videos for the past 
year or so, I think a half a year, where uh -huh. he's uploaded more than 150 videos and he spends an hour a day doing this. And oh my goodness. he has grown from 79 subscribers to 100 subscribers, <laughs> right? And, and I'm like, surely this, this should indicate something. You know, I was thinking that. I was thinking that as well. The most bizarre thing, like about people wanting to become YouTubers is I feel you would get into it and then so quickly be discouraged because you'd be getting like very Persistence low views and very <laughs> few subscribers and you just have to convince yourself, oh, if I just stick in this long enough, then I'll people reach People like watching me. What am I saying? Sounds it like me not... in this podcast. You know, people just like hearing my voice. So I keep doing it. Sorry, kind of, kind of going back to mm -hmm. the monetization thing, right? Uh, them changing their policy they can also demonetize any video They're at their whim. You know, I shouldn't be surprised. I'm not really surprised because this is exactly on topic with things that, you know, making community discusses about Facebook and mm -hmm. Instagram, less about YouTube, but Facebook and Instagram being like a lot of publishers put their content. And then once Facebook and Instagram are like, ah, actually, we're not going to promote your stuff anymore. In fact, we're going to hide it. Then you are at the mercy of the mm -hmm, YouTube mm -hmm. algorithm. Slash mm -hmm. algorithms everywhere. Algorithms everywhere. Coming out of Silicon Valley. Yeah. We should just make our own algorithm. Well, it's hard because you want, you want people to come directly to the source. We would prefer people to just come directly to the Macon website mm -hmm. via experiencing us through Instagram or Facebook, wherever, because it's diluted and it's through these other tech companies' lenses, right? It's through whatever they permit you to see and the structure that they have. But how do you, in this day and age, it's so hard to get people to actually organically visit websites anymore that <laughs> that seems not, it seems too idealistic to suggest we, oh, we're just going to stop doing social media and people will just come to the site. Makes sense. I mean, I don't remember the last time I typed a brand yeah. new website into my search bar. I mean, if you think about it, like YouTubers, they could put videos on their own websites like, you know, sharicepoon.com. I could upload my own videos mm -hmm. to it. No one would come and watch them. So so you're saying that, that being at the mercy of the algorithm is actually better than me avoiding this platform altogether and just doing my it own thing. It kind of depends what kind of person you are. <laughs> if you're really against big tech, then you, yeah, you're not going to upload. So, I mean, question to this, right? This kind of implies that, okay, me being independent might give me a, I won't say fairer is the word, but the question I want to get to was that, do you think that YouTube has a responsibility to maintain a fair platform? Like, because... There, there's been complaints on like like YouTubers being like, oh, you only protect the top three percent of accounts, right? You you hide us all. You don't you don't promote us, right? Uh, your algorithm is rigged. Do you, do you think it has a responsibility to? It's so funny because you, man, I wish Eugene was here. The, <laughs> the, the the side of the argument that I always come down on is no, the company has no responsibility. To you, Ooh. the consumer or the viewer or the public. You know, Facebook doesn't actually, even in the controversy about election rigging, uh -huh. they're a private company. They don't have a responsibility to you, the consumer. But okay. this is what Eugene would say, is that... He, I love it how you're just like speaking for Eugene I now. Know. <laughs> I'm just arguing both sides now. He thinks that they're, even though technically they are not... 
they should have this goodness in them that makes the company like a social justice figure in society. And I, I disagree, but that, like, he he imagines that that's what should happen. That that was actually my next question, which was what I was going to preempt. But then shouldn't the should kick in from a because you my you only my only argument is that as a business proposition, it makes sense to do. I think it does to some degree make sense to placate the viewers. They're not responsible. Like you can't say, oh, you you as a company, you have to do this for us. But from their end, as I believe it will work out in your favor as a company money-wise to do some things that, you know, don't, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so don't turn if, your if viewers I against am, you. If I am fair or if I'm not fair, what is my pros and cons? What's my cost-benefit analysis, right? Yeah. And essentially that's, that's the more private company uh, perspective or the the starting point for that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I guess whether or not there is a middle ground is when when a private company reaches such a stage where its influence should be governed by something else. Well, and that's where laws come in, right? Yeah, well, we did talk about this quite a lot on a previous episode regarding children's content. Ah, yes. And I did wind up saying that YouTube does need to take action in that regard. So I don't, I think the stakes, what, what we're talking about today, you know, stars and mm -hmm. monetization, like to me, the stakes are not that high. Us, right, mm -hmm. as young adults, we're making this decision to become YouTubers and it's a risk that we're taking that they could change the rules of monetization on us. But the element of children's viewing, this is a whole other topic, which is why we had an episode <laughs> on it is, I think the the stakes are different. Okay, that makes sense. Whether or not they should provide a fair platform is is up for grabs, and and the the whole private company. I, I do hold the private company stance, by the way. Uh, I do agree with you. I that, knew you would. That they do not have a responsibility to make it fair. The the should question is is one that um, I do ponder. Yeah. Going back to the person who's uploaded to one hundred fifty videos with. Uh, uh, <laughs> with a hundred, a hundred subscribers, right? He's been doing this for over like a year ish. He's nineteen, ish. so yeah, okay. he's, you know he's not doing much else probably. He's and so a he's doing this in his spare time. But do do you think that the generation, uh, our, our generation? I'm not sure if this, this is even our generation. <laughs> no, like, I don't think it is. People in general, <laughs> people in general, are overly optimistic about the odds. Oh, right? Or man. are they going in full, like with full comprehension? Sure. Like I might not make it, but I'm going to try anyway. Which is what the Hollywood is, right? A lot of people move to LA. A lot of people recognize oh. that being an actor or being a successful actor or musician is hard to come by. Somehow, I think that people recognize that being in Hollywood is takes more skill. Not trying to put down all YouTubers, but... Like, what's the skill exactly involved? Of being a YouTuber? Uh-huh. I, I feel like there is a lot of skill. But I don't think people see it that way. Okay, so it's a, it's a perception. We go back to the perception. Because I think people see movies and television and understand, you know, oh, this takes time. This takes, I don't know, like a lot of people to produce this kind of material. But they Whereas look at YouTube and it seems… I can vlog. Yeah. And they don't think of it as a skill. Like, they don't think of… This is not acting. Like they don't think of it as acting. They don't think of it necessarily as uh, being a stand-up comedian. It's a combination of those things, but they don't. I don't think people perceive it that way. Do you think it's 
harder to perceive it in YouTube than it is, say, on Instagram, where K- like KOLs coming up on, uh, key opinion mm-hmm. leaders coming up on Instagram are, I mean, I've got family friends who've become KOLs. So I'm like, oh, okay, I'm not sure actually how hard this is. Whereas like, I'll oh, posting the right pictures, uh, tagging the right people. And I think the Instagram, the amount of time it takes is much less though compared to YouTube. So it seems YouTube does seem to, you know, go into the amount of time that turns something into a part-time job, whereas Instagram stays in like that hobby realm. And I, I do think of casual, you know, this guy, you know, Asher Benjamin, who we've been talking about. The confusing thing to me is where he's like, he says, there's no reason I shouldn't be able to make it a career. I feel like there's a lot of reasons that <laughs> you're not going to be able to make this into a career. But I, I think it's fine to use vlogging as a hobby. Mm. People write blogs. You know, people use social media. You should you should enjoy vlogging, I even think. But you, it's kind of bizarre that you are so optimistic about it turning into a sustainable lifestyle. Uh, I mean, this also speaks to the fact that uh, news and politics or even gaming channels uh, garner more views and more followers than basic vlog channels, right? Because I guess with news and gaming, there is a certain perceptible skill involved mm-hmm. in those videos, whether it's just like playing the game well or being being highly connected. And then I, yeah. I actually don't know what news, <laughs> <laughs> news accounts do. Well, I mean, no, I completely agree with gaming. That if you were a good gamer, I would be more on board with saying, yeah, you could turn this into, I mean, you're not going to maybe not be rich, but like mm-hmm. you could turn this into a full-time job. It, it's essentially if, whether you have a skill that there is a spec, spectatorship to, spectatorship, mm. is that a word? And that not a lot of other, relatively not a lot of other people have. Like what, what Asher Benjamin is doing, you and I and basically everybody else can do, can do. if we gave an hour of our day every day. I'm, I'm not sure whether it's how easy it is to do, but rather how many people have done it. Vlogging was never hard, but those who vlogged early did garner a, or did, did kind of put a following of subscribers, right? And even though what they did before which wasn't hard, uh, there was a certain entertainment value to it. I'm on board. There, It's a very saturated market. So if you want to be a full-time YouTuber, maybe you should change directions and be a VR-er. <laughs> whatever, the na- whatever the next right. channel is going to be. Yeah, the next the next platform, the next, next media. platform. You serve like two-minute adrenaline shots into people's bloodstreams. I'm not sure. This this brings up a whole different topic, whether YouTube is just a fad. That's a good place to end things for the day. Thank you so much to our guest. It's a pleasure having you. It's a pleasure to be here. If you are interested in learning more about Macon and our membership opportunities, which include weekly newsletters, exclusive content, and a members-only Slack, you can head over to macon.com. There, you can also listen to more of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. If you like this episode, you can subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. We are also now on Spotify. So for the people who've been asking, you can now listen on Spotify as well. Um, You can also do us a huge favor by just reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this episode with a friend. I'm Scott. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.